there i like that yeah there he is yeah. Woo. avengers so my son is a big fan of hulk everything is hulk right now and hulk smash and then he said daddy do you know did you know that mommy hulk cooks dinner and daddy hulk reads the newspaper and i'm like why, why i did not he? know this yeah, I didn't realize the Hulk family was fully embracing the 1950s uh, nuclear family ideal. Um, and Hulk has a sister. So I, oh. I learned a lot about Hulk that I didn't know. Does Hulk have a dog? You know, he didn't really mention that because probably that would be a chihuahua. Three kids. A little chihuahua. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's very funny. He's everything's Hulk. So what we've been doing is using hulk as his inspiration like well you know hulk eats all his dinner hulk finishes all of his rice hulk He's doesn't like, throw does. temper tantrums no yeah <laughs> yeah that's the one we uh we uh got to revise that a little bit but we'll say things like you know hulk is actually really smart and hulk does all his homework stuff like that so anyway, professor hulk, hulk is, does Professor Hulk does, yeah. Bring them together. Fully, fully realized Mark Ruffalo Hulk is oh. is the perfect combination of strength and uh, intelligence and compassion. So, yeah, he is. But uh, anyway, that's kind of been our thing the past few weeks with him. How are things for you? They're going well. Yeah, we're just tired and busy because now, as of a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. my wife is coaching volleyball. Oh, my daughter is now playing volleyball. So my wife is coaching her team, uh, fifth grade volleyball. So the stakes are high. Yeah. It doesn't um, get much more intense, but my daughter also started violin and she started dance. Uh-huh. So it's, and she started first communion. And it has been like the last week was wild. This next week will be pretty wild because I also, after some pleading by some parents at our school, we're begging our athletic director because the fifth grade boys didn't have a football coach. And so I and my uh, co-basketball coach uh-huh. uh, for a junior high, he, we both separately went to our athletic director and said, you know what, if they need a coach, we'll do it. And so we, we both did that, not knowing the other had done it. So we have taken that on. So it's like there's a Monday football and volleyball practice, a Tuesday football practice, Wednesday's first communion, Thursday's like a day off. You know, we still have to teach. And uh, and then Friday, there's volleyball practice. And this past week, my daughter had a thing at the school and church after. It was just. And you guys are in the you're in the thick of it. Oh, yeah. And it's like not even like basketball is when I'm like, yeah, we're hitting this hard. We're going three or four days a week, but this is something different because I'm also, I, I teach PE and 
uh, this past week, I started a new unit at the same time that we started football practice. And that was a unit on rugby. And that has been, I'd say successful. It's been Uh very interesting to be like, hold on. This is how you throw a ball. Now, technically you can throw a ball however you want in rugby, as long as your hands don't move toward your try line when you release the ball. So you can throw it however you want. It just they all has have to, to be backwards. backwards. Yeah, yeah, they all have to be backward laterals just, of some. So sort. you can overhand it, but I've been trying to get the underhand because that's the most effective thing. Uh-huh. And they're all using. And they do like a two-handed five. underhand spin, right? Like yeah. It's a, well, there's a spin pass, there's a pop pass, there's a oh, there's some other kind of pass, but you can do whatever you want. You can go over the the side like that. Anyways, it's been fun because it's brand new to almost all the students and to me. And uh-huh. so, the, you know, their first question is, are we going to tackle? I'm like, no, no, no. Cause you guys don't know how to tackle. <laughs> yeah. We play football. I'm like, yeah, it's not the same. Sorry. It's not the same. Um, but it's been kind of fun. So I've been prepping myself this week cause we're going to get more organized in games and stuff. We'll, uh-huh. we'll see how it works out. I'm excited. I've tried to introduce some new, sports to PE things that they don't normally do. Archery is one of those things that we've done. I'm going to try to do cricket. Okay. I don't really understand that game. So we're going to try it. I don't know if anybody does, but, and on top of that, you know, last time uh, on our dad, bot after dark episode, we, you and I were talking about TikTok. Yeah. I, your statement about TikTok being edifying especially if you get your what you're following down to what you actually want to follow uh-huh i am down a series of rabbit holes that i did not <laughs> expect myself to be down one of yeah. which is jrr tolkien and middle earth tiktok messianic yeah. judaism tiktok <laughs> and, and uh and stoicism and I'm uh, the the list of books that I have on their way to me at the moment is growing, and I'm not sure when it's going to end. And I'm okay with it. It's meanwhile I'm trying to figure out who Hadrian was and who how what makes him tick and and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's there's too much stuff. There's just too much stuff in the world to learn. Yeah. And now. Hey, by the way, welcome to 40, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me. Now that we're here in our 40s, we have to be careful with what we spend our time on. Oh, my <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, I can't. Oh, oh, and there's another thing. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. The power of advertising is real. And I saw an ad on Instagram and I clicked on it. It was for an article. And the article was 30 of the most replayable video games. And so there's a bunch in there that I know, like Civilization is in there, Red Dead Redemption 2, um, Dark Souls trilogy. And a lot of those I haven't played, some of the Fallout stuff. But there's a game I came across called 80 Days. And it's like around the world. Yeah, it's legitimately just an iOS Android app. But the reason it's replayable is you start in London and it's, it's the characters from Jules Verne's uh, book. World, days. And so you play the character of the Frenchman, Jean Passepartout, 
and okay. you are the valet to uh, Phileas Fogg. And in the game, Phileas Fogg's like, hey, we're going around the world. And you are his valet, so you make a lot of the decisions. You watch the money. You pick where you go next, unless he really forces you. Um, and it tracks your days, tracks your money, and you go to new places. It opens up new routes. But the thing is, there's like 180 cities you can end up in. And so you, it's really hard to play the game the same way twice, as well as all of these decisions and things to learn throughout. Now, it's set in 1872. What's interesting, it, it takes like a steampunk uh-huh. vibe where there's like these automatons and there's like airships and there's there's a whole bunch of like stuff that's kind of the steampunk variety uh and it's it's literally just it's a text game it, it the stuff you read you choose how you respond and it changes what's gonna happen next and you know there's a map and uh, it's kind of addictive because i've been playing it all day so it sounds like it's got some oregon trail vibes Oh yeah. Yeah. Because I like that. And, and because there's, it's like, well, if you get the whole Englishman outfit set with the wool pants and the wool shirt and the gentleman's coat, you can like get cheaper fares on trains in Europe, but you're also going to, if you go North, you're going to need winter gear. If you go South, you're going to need, and you go to these markets and you have, you can take loans from the bank. You can explore cities and find new routes and you meet these people and and they tell you things and fights break out. There's mutinies on ships. And um, I've ended up and died in the North Pole twice. Um, (laughs) I've ended up like destitute in the middle of South America and not able to make it the rest of the way with no money to travel. Um, The most recent game I'm stuck in, where did I end up? I'm in, I want to say Manila the Philippines and okay. I'm trying to make my next decision as to where to go. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating and it's a massive waste of time. That's because what makes I, it so replayable. I, I want to be reading about the Jewish, the Jewish Jesus, Yeshua uh-huh. and the Silmarillion. And instead I'm playing this dumb game. I know. No, there's not enough time. And then the time we have, we spend on stupid stuff. We shouldn't spend it on. Uh, but that's that sounds like a fun game. I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's good. Well, let's get into the topic since yeah. we only have so much time. Um, the topic did, for tonight. Did you like my title that I came up with? Walls and withdrawals. I love. It. I love the alliteration. <laughs> love it. So yeah, no, I, I think it's a great title. Um, Walls and withdrawals: the reign of Emperor Hadrian, and the. You know what, before I I, kind of like the way we frame this on the outline, I'll just start. Okay, go for it. Just dive in. So I read this article uh, and it came out September 9th. So just just 10 days ago, actually. And it's called When an Empire Withdrew from an Unwinnable War. And it's written by Edward Watts, who's a professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. So that that's the article that spurred this discussion and, and this topic for tonight. And, and he's he's got a couple books on Rome too that I that I yeah on. one of them was like the the perpetual fall of the Roman Empire and another one I I forgot what it was but yeah he's got a couple uh, a couple history books on Rome specifically mm-hmm. and um, and so anyway I was reading this article and I was talking to you about it Eric a, a few days ago and the the premise of the article was. In 113 AD, 
Emperor Trajan engaged and began an invasion of the Parthian Empire uh, because they were interfering with the Roman client kingdom of Armenia. Uh, they had deposed the king there and replaced them with one that would be favorable to Parthia. And so Trajan used that as an excuse to invade Parthia. Um, previously, uh, Rome and Parthia had had a long history of fighting and times of peace. Uh, Parthia was situated um, on the Silk Road. They were the main conduit for Rome to get a uh, connection to Han China. As they cross, you'd have to have crossed what we know as modern day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and parts of Afghanistan. And so it was a massive empire. And previously, before this, this deposition of Armenia, the, the border between Rome and Parthia was the Euphrates River in Iraq. And so Trajan used this as, an, as a chance to kind of conquer an old enemy. And so he led an invasion in 113 into Parthia. He conquered all of Armenia, made it a Roman province, no longer a client kingdom, but an actual province. And by 116 AD, he had conquered not only Armenia, but the city of Babylon, um, the Parthian capital of Tesaphon, uh, which is near modern day Baghdad. He'd conquered most of Iran as well. And so Roman made these huge incursion into the Parthian empire. However, Trajan died in 117 AD and he left his empire to his successor, his adopted son, Hadrian. And Hadrian, within a month and a half, withdrew all Romans from their Parthian positions and effectively abandoned uh, Armenia and Tesaphon and Babylon and all their, their gains across the Euphrates River um, to allow the Parthians to reconquer it. And the Parthians, um, when Trajan had invaded them, had basically just retreated to the mountains in northern Iran and in parts of Afghanistan and just kind of waited the Romans out and began fomenting rebellions across Armenia mm -hmm. and, and, and just creating kind of this guerrilla, guerrilla war style tactic because um, they couldn't beat the Romans in open combat. So they said, well, we'll, we'll bleed them dry sort of thing and force them to withdraw. And that's exactly what happened. And, and that's the, the article that we read. And or that's half the article we read. And then there's a whole other half that what happens after Hadrian withdrew. That's the setup is there was this war, war between Rome and Parthia. Rome successfully invaded them, conquered vast stretches of Parthian territory. But when Hadrian or when Trajan died in 117, Hadrian, his chosen successor, said, we are going to withdraw from Parthia because it's not worth the military cost to try to hold on to this and, and keep it. So, you know, I'm looking at this map of the Roman Empire in 117 AD, and mm -hmm. that is Rome at its greatest extent. That's the empire at its greatest extent at the time of Trajan's death. So he had expanded the empire to its greatest. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and Trajan is famously known as one of the five good emperors. He's one of the more beloved emperors in Roman right. history. Yeah. yeah. But as I look at this map, one of the things I note is they have Britain. They do have a wall. It's not Hadrian's wall. 
as of yet, there's going to be another wall. But um, my question really is, outside of the Parthian Empire, what foreign enemies did the Roman Empire really have? You have Germanic tribes, which have a very spotty ability to unite into any force that can threaten Rome other than harassing them. Um, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of Northern European and Eastern European tribes. There's, you know, the, the, uh, the tribes in what is now Scotland. But again, outside of those, there's no empire that threatens Rome except for the Parthian empire, especially during the Roman empire. When we're talking about the Republic. Yeah. There's plenty of other like empires and forces that at work to, threaten the Roman Republic, but once it becomes an empire, they've kind of, they've consolidated Egypt and the Middle East and Turkey and all of that kind of falls under their fold. And so at this it's point- true, but, and this is something that Rome dealt with forever, like Egypt would rebel and they oh. did rebel right after Hadrian took over, they did rebel again. And, and then the Jews, uh, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, like, so they had all these rebellions, but yeah, they didn't have these external enemies, but the Parthians and, and I'm looking at the same map as you, Eric, and the Parthian empire, it looks like, yeah, it looks like a decent size on the map that you see, but that's because the map hasn't zoomed out enough. The Parthian empire was massive in its own right. Like Iran was huge in its modern day Iran is a huge nation in and of its own. And then this empire stretched into Afghanistan and Bactria and, you know, all the way up to almost, almost to China or India. And so it was a massive empire in its own right. So these two hegemons kind of were, were going, they kept clashing along the Euphrates river and they would just keep pushing back and forth. And so sometimes mm -hmm. the, Ar the Parthians would take Armenia, then the Romans would take it back and, and the Euphrates, you know, so basically what we know is modern day Iraq was the dividing line between the two, but you're right. I mean, Northern Africa, if you look at what's South of, um, is South of, of Northern Iraq and the conquered Roman territories. It's, it's like the Garmatians. I mean, it's, it's a lot of African tribes, um, but no unified resisting empire because right. they had con they'd conquered that empire. That was Carthage. They had, they defeated them centuries before. So yeah, you're right. And the Germans were too, at this time, they were too disorganized. They weren't unified and the Celts and the, and the, you know, the Celts that lived in Ireland and the Picts in Scotland were, while they were harassing the Romans, they were never a threat to Roman, you know, security in the heartland, at least. And the only other one that comes to mind are like the Sarmatians. And even they were, mm -hmm. there was no real Sarmatian empire that was coalesced enough to threaten Rome outside yeah. of harassing their borders. And, you know, the Romans had agreements with the Sarmatians to, you know, take some of their sons and, and mm -hmm. use them in their legions. And that kept their peace. So you mentioned something before about uh, both Trajan and Hadrian being some of one of the, each of the five good emperors and looking into this, you know, that idea of the five good emperors. One is this is something that, that comes up from two European writers and historians would be Nicola Edward. Machiavelli and Edward Gibbon. Gibbon, yeah. And uh, 
Oh, and I and I had it uh, pulled up. It's interesting because um, Machiavelli basically says uh, these good emperors. If you if you were succeeding your birth father as emperor, you tended not to be very good. But if you were adopted for some reason, that led you to be a better emperor than somebody who was born into it. And this makes me think of that, that statement of, you know, strong men make easy life. Easy life makes weak men. Weak men make hard life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but see, that's not, that's not, that can be true of, of entire groups of people, entire generations. But I think within families, it, it makes even more sense, right? So mm-hmm. if you're an emperor and you have a son, his life is made very easy and he tends not to be a very good at ruling. Mm-hmm. But if you've adopted a son, they know that they were chosen for this. It wasn't just handed to them and they tend to be better. That's, that's something that Machiavelli stated. Um, but as um, I think Machiavelli also said, you know, th- these guys who were not, they weren't guarded by the Praetorians and special guards. They were guarded by the fact that they lived good lives, which is, you know, but again, even Hadrian had issues, right? He <laughs> had people out to get him. Um, well, one of his first moves as emperor was he killed. He had killed four senators that spoke out against him um, as being when he was named emperor. So immediately upon his rise to power, he did a very cruel thing um, because he wanted to crush any sort of political outset. Um, it said that he was a frequent fan because he was a he was a Hellenist. Uh, he was a fan of Greek culture, big fan of, and he wanted, he wanted a pan-Hellenic type of Rome. And so he's a big fan of like rhetoric, uh, rhetoric and debate. Um, and he loved debating people, but he hated losing. And if you lost to him in a, de- or if you beat him in a debate, he like, you kind of had to sleep with one eye open. So yeah, he oh, was a good great. emperor. You know, he was good because he brought, and we'll get into this, he brought stability to Rome and Trajan expanded Rome to its greatest extent. So they were good in that regards. And like, overall, Rome did well under them. And, and, and Hadrian had some other things that I would, I would say were, were good for the people of Rome. But that doesn't mean he was a good person. Oh, and yeah. I think we, and we often confuse the two and we say, well, good person means good leader and vice versa. And that's, and in fact, I would say that's rarely the case. I'd say that's the exception. Not the yeah, rule. I mean, if we're again, if we're going to judge him by today's standards of what a person says and does, he would not be considered good. Yeah. We're talking about the results of his 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 reign. So another thing is interesting here because you you said Trajan expanded the emperor empire, and he's considered a good emperor mm-hmm. by doing so. He expanded the empire, but see, at the towards the end of his reign, they were kind of stuck. They were quagmired in, let's say the Middle East or close to Afghanistan, right? Yeah, sure. They're kind of quagmired there. And that's where the resources started to get drained because you can conquer. Every time you conquer, you gain something that's, that's something you can set aside and gain wealth from. But when you get there and you get stuck and you have to constantly resupply and try to uphold the order, that's where it costs you, right? And that's why the Romans... You know, when they put down rebellions, they did so as quickly and efficiently as possible, whether that was in Israel or Egypt or in Gaul, 
they did them quickly because the longer they were stuck trying to impose their rule, the more costly it was. Once you can get the people to agree, yeah, we're here, we're going to obey the rules. The Romans were happy to let most people just kind of do their thing for the most part, as long as they pay their taxes. It, but when Trajan gets stuck there, that's where Hadrian sees this is not good for the empire. Maybe it's popular with most of the generals. Maybe it's popular with most of the, the senators and, and you know, the, the upper crust of society. But he realizes being stuck there is not going to help the empire. And instead of fighting a foreign enemy, he realizes he has other enemies to fight within the empire, right? There's some other rebellions going on that need to be squashed. Yeah, I think within that first year, Egypt rebels. I think there's a couple other rebellions that pop up within that first year that he has to, he has to, if he wasn't going to anyway, he would have had to reallocate his resources out of Parthia to crush what would be considered established Roman territory. Um, and then later in his reign, the Bar Kokhba rebel, rebellion, which I think is in 132 AD, um, he has to spend a lot of resources defeating the, that Jewish revolt. Um, so yeah, he, he, in a sense, he sees the writing on the wall and he goes, we can't hold Parthia. And I think our Western knowledge of history, like you said, well, we call them five good emperors because that's what Edward Gibbon and Machiavelli said. But our Western knowledge of history is that Rome was the empire in the world at this time. And we kind of go, well, yeah, there's the Parthian empire. It's like, well, the Parthian empire are the successors to the Seleucids, um, who was a, a breakoff empire from Alexander the Great's conquests. And then the Seleucids themselves were a successor to the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which was the, the established hegemon in, in the Middle East and Turkey for centuries. You know, that those are the Persians that we see in, in the movie 300 that the Spartans are fighting, those Persians. And so it's like, this wasn't, you know, it wasn't a group of disparate tribes like Gaul was that was never really unified until Roman authority came in. It's like these were established ancient peoples that have had a culture going back millennia that they just weren't going to accept Roman rule, um, no matter how much we tried to force it on them. I don't know why I say yeah, we, I mean, like if, I was if, there, but it's like. Well, so just a quick aside. Um, you said we. As if we're the successors to the Roman Empire. Because well, we, we do well, accept, we, I mean, we are, and it's interesting reading about Hadrian, there's a lot of things he established, the way he codified Roman, Roman law, you know, and the way he abolished like special dungeons, which is like cruel and unusual punishment. Like those are things that we in Western civilization, like, well, yeah, that's, that's a Roman we, legacy. Yeah, we are, we have inherited that Western thread of tradition. And I'd say much of that is good. But yeah, it's interesting because you say we, right? Because you kind of you're you're claiming to be an heir of that, and I would agree we are heirs. And I'm that. also giving away the game as to what we're going to talk about in a bit. But yeah, yeah. So I had a student this week, and and we are te I'm teaching about um, the United States in the late 1800s, right? So mm -hmm. our Spanish American War and annexation of Hawaii, um, our own imperialism, and again, here's the thing. I said our. Yeah, my student. She said, "Why did we do that?" And I had to stop. I said, "You know what? That's a good point. We didn't. Um, none of us here made the choices that 
Americans made 120 years ago. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad she I'm glad we had that discussion, because one of the images I show uh, to the class is this political cartoon that says uh, the white man's burden. Oh, yeah. In quotes. And it shows the British guy and the and Uncle Sam walking up this this mountain of all these rocks. It was like savagery and barbarism, cannibalism, superstition, all this stuff. And they're carrying on their backs these these wicker baskets. And in the wicker baskets are what I can only describe as disgusting caricatures of non-white races. Mm. It's like the Cubans. He It looks like this lazy, bony, um, dirty you know, ruffian of a man, as if that's what all Cubans are. And there's, there's an African, there's people from Asia. And it's just, and I showed it to the students, I said, this is looking at the world like this. If this is your first picture of what somebody else in the world looks like, and then you meet them, you've already set your baseline really low. And anyways, sure. um, I, I always like to show that image because I want them to understand this was a viewpoint 120 years ago. And it, we know that's not true, but she said, why would we do like take over Hawaii or whatever? I said, well, keep in mind, we didn't do this. We in this classroom are simply kind of heirs to all these things that have happened. Um, but those choices don't belong to us. We have new choices to make. So I just think it's interesting because again, um, I'm likely descended genetically more from Roman citizens and Parthians, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, I just, I, I do think that's interesting. We say we a lot. I, I do, but I think it's, it, well, one, as a Packer fan, people have always said, why do you want to say we, like you're playing the game and it's like, I don't know. It's just what we do. Yeah. Wisconsin. You play tomorrow night, right? Yeah. Yeah. Against I got the Lions. Yeah. Well, here's hoping, but I, I do think, and it's for the sakes of this discussion, you know, we, as Americans, we assume the mantle of our history and we say, well, we did this. Remember when we beat the British in 1770, you know, like, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. You and I, Eric, like we, even and though it's I'm nearly certain my ancestors at in you 1776 were in England or Ireland. <laughs> there's a good chance my ancestors were Hessian mercenaries on the other it's side of the, so it's very quite, likely, but because we're Americans, we accept yeah. that, 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 that mantle of history and we say well this is our history and so we did that even though obviously we didn't physically you and i didn't do right. that but we accept that and so i think it's it is fair to say if we can embrace the things that we're proud of as americans we can also say there's things we as americans throughout our history did that were not something to be proud of with that said going back into the roman discussion and I guess my just inadvertent slip on saying, well, we are trying to Romanize the Parthians and the Parthians, they just weren't having it. And, and it created this situation where Hadrian is faced with a choice. He goes, I can either continue Trajan, who he was the chosen heir for, for the empire by Trajan, or possibly Platina, Trajan's wife. But um, Hadrian said, I can either continue in this legacy, even though I think it's going to be a fool's errand, or I can change course, get us out of Parthia, and we can try to ensure the stability of the empire that we have 
instead of these newfound gains that we probably can't hold on to anyway. And that, and that was the choice he was faced with. And so he chose to withdraw draw Rome. He became emperor in August 11th of 117. By September 30th, the last Romans had left their Parthian holds. And I have this specific, I think it's Dura Europonis is the last Roman base, Roman base that, that Romans were fleeing from, or not fleeing, but withdrawing from. And then from there, the Parthians quickly took back all the territory that they had lost, including Tessaphon, including Babylon. They had reestablished dominance over the kingdom of Armenia. And so everything that Trajan had won within a matter of a year was, was gone. And it was really sudden. And Hadrian faced a lot of flack back in Italy and from the Senate because of that decision. And a lot of generals disagreed with his withdrawal from, from the Parthian campaign. Yeah. And, and the withdrawal from the areas you're talking about, like Babylon, Sesiphon, um, Mesopotamia, which yeah. those cities have been established at this point for probably 2000 years. Like th- those places are, you said ancient, th- those places are old. The people there have been, been there established for a long time and for comparison when babylon was at its height you know when babylon was a a great city when rome was a collection of sheep herders like that's it gives you a perspective we consider rome the eternal city no 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 no. babylon that that was the true eternal city back in the day like and what they were fascinating was the crown jewel of the ancient mid-east following the fall of Rome in 476 AD and kind of the, the collapse of the Western empire and what then proceeds is what we call the middle ages. Some would call it the dark ages, roughly 800 years, 900 years of not necessarily chaos, but crisis, disease, death, a lack of learning, lack of education, instability. Babylon continued through that entire time what we generally call the middle ages, the dark ages of civilization, civilization just continued on there for mm-hmm. another thousand years. Um, so we're talking about a place that's, that's older. We think of Rome and all its greatness and all its might, but when compared to the longevity of Babylon, whether it's a, a single empire or not, it hasn't been, but that place is ancient, more ancient than Rome. Yeah. And that's and, uh, hard to dislodge, is my point. You, you don't just go into an ancient empire and just kick them out. It doesn't work like that. Well, and I think you could you could make it an argument today for Britain, London. Mm-hmm. London is now an ancient city. And if you were to try to invade England, and even if we had conquered it, we couldn't hold it. <laughs> like, yeah. And I know as powerful as America is, you couldn't hold England. You couldn't hold London. That city's too ancient. Those people have their own identity that's so ingrained in them that it's it's it would be impossible to, I, mean, I guess not impossible, but it'd be next to impossible to, to replace. And you could say the same for multitudinous cities across the world, that China especially is... Mm-hmm. You know, five thousand year old civilization. You can't, 
you know, if you, you could maybe beat them militarily, but you're never going to beat their historical identity. And I think that's something we often forget when it comes to these engagements between nations of old and even nations today. It's just something that we kind of gloss over. So I, that brings up an odd question is what does it take to actually defeat a nation in totality? And the last for the Romans, I think the most so the greatest example is the Carthaginians. They crushed them. You know, it's interesting. Salted the earth and just said, yeah, you're you're done. Like they you have to you have to commit what we would now consider massive war crimes in order to effectively put your enemy out. It is. It's interesting. One, I, I think Carthage was is a good example, but I I was thinking as you were talking, Egypt is another ancient civilization that far predates the Romans. But Egypt is interesting because Egypt had always been in communication with other cultures across the Mediterranean. And there was Greek colonies all over the Mediterranean. There was Greek colonies in the Black Sea and what we know of as Turkey, modern day Turkey. And these Greek mm. colonies, you know, colonies, and we're not thinking of colonies like we're thinking, it's not like the, the colonies of the 1800s. Jamestown. Yeah, these are yeah these are colonies where there's these little like little cities that they would establish and then they would trade and they would do communication. I'm not saying everything is benevolent, but there's from what I understand, Carthage itself was at one point a Phoenician colony, which was a descendant of a Greek colony. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Greek Hellenistic cultural exchange going across the Mediterranean, and so with Egypt even though they had their own culture, they had their own gods, they had their own language, they had this whole separate history from the Greeks. But there was a lot of intermixing going on between the Greeks and the Egyptians for hundreds of years. And so when Alexander came and he deposed Pharaoh and conquered all of Egypt, it was easier for the Ptolemies, the successors to Alexander, to hold on to Egypt because of that shared cultural connection than it was for Rome to hold on to Parthia because Parthia and Rome, although they had exchanged ideas and goods and they were part of the Silk Road, Parthia was never going to be Rome and Rome was never going to be Parthia. Um, And so they might make gains on their borders and on their fringes, but they were never going to truly conquer one another um, in totality. But other than that, you're right. Yeah, you'd have to go salting the earth. You'd have to go Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan if 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 that's your ultimate goal is to totally absolve or dissolve that culture and that people. It would it would have to be an extermination, not a conquest. It's funny because kind of the people in Egypt have been there for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, When Alexander went into egypt what the 340s right he became the pharaoh that was the last native pharaoh the greek there were greek pharaohs for 300 years after that they were all greek including cleopatra cleopatra was greek so their entire ruling class their pharaohs but also probably a lot of their ruling class became greek and then from there for another 300 odd years the pharaohs were romans Mm -hmm. and then no more pharaohs after that. I'm curious to look into what what the 
yeah, what the sequence was after that. And that, that's getting us way off topic. But yeah, I mean, to actually win, you have to, unfortunately, the only way to really truly defeat an enemy for good is to commit genocide and wipe them out completely if you want to do that. I think the most recent example is probably in North and South America. Yeah. Even if it was, you know, wasn't completely intentional, disease did the yeoman share of the work there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as awful as that was, it was actually effective because it it just wiped out a population. And that then leaves massive swaths of land that are more available. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and then what resistance the the native or indigenous peoples could put up was insufficient to, you know, if, if at the time of the first European settling North America, there was 25 million native Americans. Yeah. Those guys can unite and respond to that threat. Sure. Yeah. You could push the Europeans out, but, but when, but that would be like saying if, if, if a group came to Europe and said, we're invading Europe, well, which Europeans are going to fight back? Is it yeah. going to be in depending on the time too? Is it going to be, you know, the French or the Carolingians or which German principality is actually going to step up because it's. Yeah. Know, well, it's exactly what Caesar did. Julius Caesar did when he conquered Gauls, he used certain Gaulish tribes to help defeat the rest of them. Like and it, the French and English did the same thing in North America. Exactly. Picked out certain tribes. And so, but okay, you so, are good. That is a good comparison as far as the most recent example of, modern day genocide to conquer a land wholly would be, I would agree would be North and South America. And, but, and again, that wasn't completely intentional, right? Like disease did, did like the spearheading of that. And then, yeah, you have tribes that are wiped out by American forces in the 1800s and a bunch of other awful nonsense. But yeah. Back to I, Hadrian. Yeah. Let's get back to Hadrian because, <laughs> because what, another thing that he did you're talking about organizing the empire and kind of putting mm-hmm. uh, resources back into the empire itself and putting down rebellions is like Hadrian's wall. And we know Hadrian, uh, most of us are introduced to Hadrian in world history class by knowing that he mm-hmm. built Hadrian's wall, right? He ordered its construction. And the idea being that Hadrian actually thought there should be a limit to the empire. There should be an extent should be a, a final frontier and just stop there. Mm-hmm. And that's oftentimes the idea we get of Hadrian having that desire to finally yeah. draw a line for the empire. Yeah. So the Euphrates, he renegotiated a, a deal with Osroes, who was the Parthian king or emperor at the time, and said, All right, well, let's reestablish Euphrates as our our eastern border. And then he immediately began on these travels throughout the empire. And he's one of the only emperors who traveled the empire during times of peace. Most emperors that traveled the empire were in response to war. So he was one of the only ones or one of the first ones that said, during times of peace, I will travel the empire. And so he went to Britain first. And this was in 122 AD. And one of the quotes here is... Uh, from the uh, his, uh, Historia Augusta, and it's written by possibly Aeolius Spartanius. And 
what they said was, and so having reformed the irony army in the manner of a monarch, he set out for Britain and there he corrected many abuses and was the first to construct a wall 80 miles in length, which was to separate the barbarians from the Romans. Specifically, he'd be talking about the, the Picts in Scotland. Um, and so he he ordered the construction of Hadrian's wall, although he probably never saw it completed. Um, but he, with the rationale that it would be cheaper for them to build this wall at kind of the narrow point between England and Scotland and man it that way than it would to garrison legions across that border to repel Pictic and Celtic invasion or raids into Britannia. And, and so he built Hadrian's Wall, establishing the northernmost limit of the Roman Empire. And... I mean, it's to be, I guess it's to be debated how much that worked. I mean, there's still raids across the border, but I'm sure it reduced them to some extent. And uh, it established sort of a zone of safety for the Roman Britons living south of that line. And, you know, for the next, I think it was another 180 years until Rome finally abandoned Britain. But that allowed Roman Britain to kind of grow into its own under that that establishment because there is no more we're, we're not going to wage these costly wars against barbarian tribes that's not worth conquering the land itself isn't worth having so let's just grow what we have right and so what happens in england is most of the or many of the major british english cities today are a result of the, the garrisons and towns that grew up around them londinium uh being one yep and it's interesting um, there's a line I was reading from that same, uh, alias Spartanius, um, is that he, oh no, I just, oh, so after he got everything set in Britain, he gets back to Gaul, France, mm -hmm. and immediately he hears about, there's a riot in Alexandria in Egypt that's being spurred on, um, by this this group there this community there which is like at the furthest point of your empire there's now a riot from where you are you're at one end you're at the northeast corner and in the southwest or sorry in the northwest corner at the southeast there's a riot that needs to be dealt with sure so again that that's where he's working on domestic issues because egypt is essentially roman at this point mm -hmm. it's been subdued but there's always going to be issues and he's yeah. just running around the empire, chasing down these issues. Yeah, he is. And, you know, then he, he on his way to Gaul, which would be modern day France, um, he it's something this is an interesting quote. It says, and from there he went over to Germany and he goes more desirous of peace than of war. He kept the soldiers in training just as if war were imminent, inspired them by proofs of his own powers of endurance and actually led the soldier's life against the Manipolis and after the example of Scipio Aemilianus Metellius and, and his own adoptive father Trajan cheerfully ate out of doors, such camp fare as bacon, cheese, and vinegar. And so he went to Germany from Gaul, so from Britain to Gaul to Germany, and he trained the soldiers there personally, and he lived a soldier's life um, while doing that, kind of inspiring their loyalty, because the one thing a Roman emperor needed was the legion's loyalty more than anything else. 
Um, but he, he, but he, you know, even though he wanted peace and he didn't want to get involved in wars, he was also smart enough to realize we have to, we have to be vigilant. We can't ignore the German tribes and we can't ignore the Picts. We can't, we can't even ignore the Parthians. We have to be vigilant, but we don't have to necessarily be aggressive. Let's see. It's the old adage, right? It's, it's cheaper to keep a customer than go get a new one. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper to keep your empire than go conquer new ones. It's cheaper to keep your army up to date and try to build it when you need it. So rather than preparing a legion, every time the, the Germans start to harass their border, just keep these ones ready to go. Yeah. They're on their side. They're dealing with peace, but keep them sharp. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, something else as he's traveling his empire, and this is where he becomes, I think he kind of comes into his own and it's these building projects. So again, reading from the Historia Augusta, Building projects. He built public buildings in all places and without number, but he inscribed his own name on none of them except the temple of his father, Trajan. At Rome, he restored the Pantheon, the voting enclosure, the Basilica of Neptune, and very many temples, the Forum of Augustus, the Baths of Agrippa, and dedicated all of them in the names of their original builders. Also, he constructed the bridge named after himself, a tomb on the bank of the Tiber, and the Temple of Bonadea. With the aid of the architect of Decrianius, he raised the Colossus and keeping it in an upright position, moved it away from the place in which the Temple of Rome is now, though its weight was so vast they had to furnish for the work as many as 24 elephants. So he went on all these building projects, not just in Italy, but in Greece. Uh, He, I think, rebuilt or built the Temple of Poseidon. He finished the Temple of Zeus or and he provided um, money to make sure that the games in, in Greece, the Olympic games, the Panhellenic games were being held continuously because he didn't want and, them to not happen. And just a historical note, those Olympics didn't make any money either. They, they've never made money. <laughs> I didn't know that. I guess that made yeah. sense, but I no, didn't know that. They lost so much money on those Olympics. That's why he had to spend so much. They didn't yeah. have a Coca-Cola sponsorship then either. So that's what it was. It hurts. But he's that was something yeah. that and he was a fan of Greece anyway. But it makes sense that he wanted to sponsor the he threw games everywhere he went. Like he traveled the empire and wherever he went, it said he built things and he held games. And it's so instructive is that he focused on quite literally the infrastructure of the empire. He goes, this empire cannot stand or withstand if it's not strong from within. And I think that is so instructive for how Rome succeeded during this century. This Their apex of, of prestige and power was, was right now. And Well, th- there's another paragraph here in this same document in which it talks about how he dealt with laws. Like... Mm. He tried cases. He got jurists involved. Most emperors would put their family in it. He um, he insisted that uh, you know masters can't kill their slaves. Uh, they would yeah, they be, to be tried by, by judges. Yeah, um, nobody can sell a slave or maidservant um, without giving a reason. Therefore, uh, if they wasted their property, if legally responsible, should be like these kind of things. Now these are laws that make sense. You're like, these are good, humane laws. They're good, rather they're good laws. And, and that's when we say 
he is one of the five good emperors because the decisions he made that had absolute power behind them were good decisions. But this is the problem with an absolute dictatorship and in, 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 in having yeah. an emperor who is all powerful is that most of the time, when you, when you have a list of dozens of emperors and you can only come up with five who are good emperors, that's the problem, right? You can have Hadrian exactly. come through and be like, I want to reform this. I want to make this better. I want to reform you know, property rights and how people deal with these things. That's great. But you don't end up having that most of the time, which is why these well, things tend not to work so well. It's funny because Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, his successor, and then Marcus Aurelius, his successor, all right in a row are four of the five good emperors, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth being Augustus, right? Every 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 other emperor there is either mediocre or terrible. Uh, Ner- Nerva. Okay. Right? Well, Nerva, Antonius Trajan, Pi- Hadrian, Antonius Pius, and Marcus Aurelius. Okay. Uh, yeah, Augusta. But, Augustus, for some reason, is not considered one of the good emperors, and. But that's the point is like, that's it. That's the, yeah, that's the still, extent of the good ones. Say you and they all happen six. right in a row. And then everything else in between that was varying degrees of so-so and terrible. And it's like, yeah, it, it's just, and I get it. Again, it's Edward Gibbon's opinion on what a good emperor is. And it was Machiavelli's opinion on what a good emperor was. But I think we can agree that the, these things that Hadrian did were good for the empire on an, empir- an imperial scale. But they were also good for a very large portion of the people that lived within that empire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can say the, the Soviet Union's conquests of Eastern Europe was good for the Soviet Union. That doesn't necessarily mean it was good for the people that lived there. And, right. and I think that's that's a, a good way to look at it. Um, but But anyway, those are the things that Hadrian did that were good. You know, he tried to codify the Roman law system, as you said, with the the taking away the right of masters to just kill their slaves without trial. And, um, you know, he did some other things for the people. It's themselves establishing this law. He also tried to, to say that the Senate's judgments couldn't be overturned by the emperor, although he would also just kill senators that he felt were a threat to him. So, you know, you kind of weigh that with one with the other. It's like, yeah, in this sense, you're trying to do something that's good, but the second your own authority is threatened, you immediately remove that, that privilege or that right um, to secure your own power. Yeah. But if those senators are a threat to what you're doing and what you're doing is good, then you can justify that action. So the elimination of the senator allows me to continue to do good things. And of course, that's going to be the justification for every dictator and absolute exactly in history. And unless it was me, you're going to have a problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But with that said, and that that's more of an argument for, and it's something I made on a short video that I did in response to a comment on TikTok was I go, I think, once Rome became an empire, Rome was destined to fall because empires by their nature put too much stock in one person. Mm-hmm. And if that one and, person isn't good or a series of those one people aren't good, it will lead to the decline of the empire where 
prior to that, when it was the Senate making those mm-hmm. decisions. Yeah, you can have bad senators. Yeah, you can have bad senates, but there's a stability within that that body and the bureaucracy that stemmed from it that allowed the republic to function despite their bad actors. And and I think, you know, we love talking about Julius Caesar and Augustus and and these five good emperors, but they were they were kind of delaying the inevitable. Yeah. As a they're they're bright spots on an otherwise diminished and and worn down well empire right empires fall so So, okay do you want do you want to talk about the parallels for today and the rest of that article yeah i'm um you know i i i think the article kind of mentioned this is very similar to what we've just experienced recently this Mm -hmm. sudden withdrawal from afghanistan by american forces Mm -hmm. which um I would agree was a good thing. It was something that once I had gotten my head on straight, probably around 2007, 2008, yeah. um, I realized that would be a good move for us to remove ourselves from, from this part of the world in a military fashion. Yeah. Um, and it took us nearly 20 years to remove ourselves completely from Afghanistan and it happened much more suddenly than we expected um, as the the Taliban used the roads we had built and ended up taking a bunch of our equipment, which is a whole thing in itself. But um, keep in mind, the people in Afghanistan expelled Alexander the Great. So they've expelled the British and the Soviets. And now the U.S. And now the U.S. You could say they expelled us. You know, we left. Well, it, and the Parthian Empire stretched into Afghanistan. It right. didn't take the whole of what we know as modern day Afghanistan. And, and when the Romans that, that, were in those places, the Parthian soldiers retreated to the hills, the, which is exactly what the Taliban did. Yeah, and they just bided their time. Um, so I, I find it fascinating that we do have this parallel. So we've we've removed ourselves from Afghanistan after spending two trillion dollars there over twenty years. Um, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money that we really debated about a year and a half ago whether it was worth spending here at home. Mm-hmm. We debated it again at the end of twenty twenty whether we really should be spending this money here at home. And the debate to spend two trillion dollars on military operations in a country halfway across the world mm-hmm. it never happens. Yeah. We never really get the debate and we, we never get the debate really where it happens in the public discourse among citizens. Mm-hmm. There was debate in the Senate and in Congress, but it was for show. Um, and, and now, okay. So now we're not spending that money there. Is it, are we going to get to a point where we can spend money here on the domestic side? You know, we talk about, you know, we're not going to build temples to Zeus, but we might build some infrastructure. (laughs) Well, and Um, I think, I think that's what's interesting is, you know, one, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was not one president wanting to stay in and the other one withdrawing it, you know, because Trump made the deal to withdraw. And then Biden basically said, 
yeah, let's get out. But this is something stretching back to Obama. Obama wanted to get out of Afghanistan. So it was something where three administrations had wanted to get out. And it finally happened here. The withdrawal itself, that can be scrutinized on the execution of it. But the withdrawal happened with the intent. And now with Joe Biden specifically and his Build Back Better plan, his whole goal of like doing infrastructure and and human welfare or human infrastructure, you know, he wants to focus on rebuilding America in what he thinks is a way that will help it be stronger as a result. And so I, I don't know if the money is such an issue because I don't necessarily believe that budgets matter anymore for the federal government. And I'm quick coming to the modern monetary theory on that idea. But I uh, do- Stephanie Kelton is very convincing <laughs> in her argument. She's very good. And I read it and I just say, I can't argue with this. And maybe yeah. I just don't have enough economics background, but I literally am reading that saying the, the deficit and debt is not a debt or deficit. It's a, an investment in the American public. Exactly. And, and when you and see I, it like that, you're like that. I I can't argue with that. And when your 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 next step is, the only question is how do we deal with inflation and un- unemployment? We simply need to be pulling money back out of the system at some point. And I I, I the only thing I can think of is well, when you put money into the system, it doesn't matter where you put it in; it's going to flow somewhere. And mm-hmm. it's at the terminus points of that money flow that you need to pull it out. And when it's it, it's flowing to Amazon, that's where you that's where you pull it out through taxes. I, that, that's the only thing. It can't just go yeah. and sit. It has to be pulled out. And and I don't agree with certain taxation policies, but if you want that to work, you just have to. You have to pick where it goes, see where it goes, well, and just I watch think where that's, it pools and pull it. And I think that's where I'm looking at this, uh, getting away from the modern monetary theory itself, but saying I don't necessarily believe that the budget matters on the federal right. level. I don't, and, and how much we spend in a given budget year matters less than it used to when we had a gold standard. But I do think what we spend our money on Mm -hmm. very much matters. And I think by no longer spending approximately a hundred billion dollars a year on Afghanistan, we are now going to have to refocus what we spend our money on. And if it's some other foreign entanglement, then I think it's, it's a wash. I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. think that's where we need to be looking. If it's on building bridges and bro, that's not even worth those aren't words bridges <laughs> bridges and roads that's what happens you know, with age man i know 40 hit me hard <laughs> but if it's you know focusing on that hard infrastructure so to speak then that's a good investment of that 100 billion dollars mm-hmm. if it's expanding the child tax credit which is was temporarily expanded this year and, and may get expanded later for a longer period i think that's a good investment because you're investing it in the people of this country and then that flows to businesses and schools and all that other stuff. So I think it doesn't necessarily matter how much we spend, but what we spend it on is what matters here. And much like Hadrian, 
when he withdrew from Parthia, the money that he wasn't spending on fighting Parthia, he was able, one, to secure the, the, the domestic tranquility of the empire by crushing the revolts that happened as they happened. And two, he was able to build things all across the empire, which were good for the people that lived in those provinces and made him very popular with those people in those provinces. And I think not that Biden is doing this solely. I mean, maybe he is doing this solely just so he can look good. But if you build things for the people that live in your country and you make their lives tangibly better, mm-hmm. you will become a popular president. And, and that's just, and I'm, I'm not saying you we have to engage in some sort of Keynesian economics debate or socialism versus capitalism, but just the idea that if you tangibly make the lives of the people in your country better, that will make them happy and then they will continue to elect you. And so I think we're at an interesting crossroads here because I think America overall is done, at least for the time being, getting involved in foreign wars. Um, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're withdrawing from foreign influence um, and they are not going to draw down their military, um, but they are not going to pursue nation building. And well, they're not. I, I hear what you're saying, but time is funny, right? Yeah. And so in 1995 and 1996 and 1997, even as late as 1998, 99, yeah. we had military resources engaged in play, well, 93 was Somalia. In the mid to late 90s, we were engaged fairly actively in Serbia and what was, you know, Balkans. the former Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, the Balkans. Um, and then we, that kind of settled down and we came back home. And, you know, in 2000, we elected George W. Bush and was, you know, we had this compassionate conservative conservatism, which was this very appealing idea that that we have some conservative values. But then, mm-hmm. you know, we looked to see how we can help people around us. It was like, man, this sounds really good. Bush was going to be in, heavily involved in education and sure. and AIDS work in Africa. And it was like, oh, this is sounding really good. And keep in mind, when 9-11 happened, when 2001 happened, we were only a couple years removed from military engagements in Europe. And yeah. So, okay. So now we're pulling out, it's 2021. We're pulling out of Afghanistan. We've been out of Iraq for a few years. Maybe we'll have some peace. How many years before something else draws us in? Because that tend, I'd love to believe that we will refrain from jumping in on stuff, but we do have this rescuers mentality. We yeah. got to jump in at every every crisis. Uh, and I guess I should say I didn't mean like we're never going to be involved in right. militarily involved around the world. We are. I mean, we've got bases everywhere. We're going to respond to threats as we see fit. I, I just think we're done for a while with the large scale invasion yeah. of and, foreign countries. Yeah. That's that's where I, you know, I, I would say even our involvement in the Balkans and Yugoslavia and and, and what was going on there with Slobodan Milosevic. I, I mean, our engagement in that, I mean, it was real, but it was very yeah. limited in scope. Um, and I would see a lot more limited in scope type engagements in the near future because one, 
the American public, at least right now, unless they get attacked directly again, like another September 11th. I just don't think we have a taste for that sort of thing. Um, but who knows what event could happen to change that. But I do think whatever it is, I, I just think there's a lot of interesting parallels that this article brought up between Hadrian and now modern day America. And one of the few things that politicians on both sides of the aisle can agree on is infrastructure, because that is the one thing where you are building things in America to make Americans' lives better. Um, and then you can debate like tax cuts and social welfare programs, but those are a little more abstract, um, whereas infrastructure is one of the few things that they can all coalesce around and say, yes, this is good for our citizens, our people. And yet there's going to be the hot debate. And one of the things is what they call the pay fors, right? Yeah. How do we pay for this? And, and again, I would kind of point to modern monetary theory and we don't have to worry about how we're going to pay for it because you're going to pay for it the same way you pay for everything else. You're simply mm -hmm. going to add zeros to the ledger. Mm -hmm. And what you need to decide is how are you going to stem inflation and unemployment? Those are the two things to balance. Yep. And if you can balance them, then you can put as much money into circulation as you want. It's not, I, I mean, a lot of people don't like it, but we do issue our own currency. So that's something we can do in the United States. Um, and yeah, I, you know, the, the thing with infrastructure is, who decides what, and this is where having an emperor is nice, right? Because the emperor can decide we're building a temple to Zeus. That's what I want. And mm -hmm. I see how it's good. And you guys will benefit from it maybe five, 10, 15 years from now. Having the debate over which road gets built and where it needs to be built is become something else entirely. So, mm -hmm. you know, infrastructure is great. I don't know how wonderful it is with, a robust representative democracy because things can get bogged down. And by the time we finally in Congress decide we're all going to put in 28.8 uh, KBPS modems for everyone, we have mm -hmm. fiber optics available and, sure. you know, that's bureaucracy. So, no, it is, but I think it's interesting because that's what Hadrian focused on and that's what ensured his mm -hmm. prosperity. And I, I think it's, you know, what the infrastructure is, you know, especially when it comes to, like you said, like the high-speed internet infrastructure, I do think there is a direct benefit there to the people in those communities. Cause a lot of that money gets decided upon at the state and local level on, okay, we've got this money to build roads and bridges and fix stuff. What do we need to fix and what do we need to build? And then they can take those federal funds. But I do have a question for you, Eric. Was Hadrian in his, in his withdrawal from the Parthian campaign, was that the right move for not only him personally, but for the Roman Empire? Or should he have prosecuted that campaign and continued Trajan's legacy? I mean, for him personally, it, it sounds like it was a risky move because mm -hmm. he had threats of, of assassination following that. He upset mm -hmm. his generals greatly. And in Rome, especially the Roman Empire, 
the legions are where the power lies. Mm -hmm. So if you upset the wrong general who has the loyalty of his legions, that could be it for you. Um, so as far as for him, it sounds like he took a great risk shifting the focus of the empire. And I think it benefited yeah. Rome. Again, I, I, it only, you know, he, he adopted Marcus Aurelius, which is interesting. Well, he adopted Antonius Pius, but he required that right. Antonius yeah. Pius adopt Lucius and then Marcus Aurelius. Right. And so those, his, those became, he chose, he handpicked who would be next in line, probably because he knew they would be good men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I, I don't think he had any sons of his own. So, nope. but again, you can't guarantee how your son turns out all the time. So if you can pick your successor, it's more likely they're going to be in line with your ideas and ideals. But after Marcus Aurelius, then you have another big downturn in terms of emperors. So it can only last as long as people are willing to carry out those ideals. So with that in mind, I, I would think that there is a threat, obviously that Hadrian faced personally, he could have died. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a common enough event for Roman emperors um, based on his decision to withdraw from Parthia, especially because Trajan was so popular before him. Um, but I think it worked out and I think it did ensure the strength of the empire for another two generations because it allowed him to secure the domestic tranquility of the empire within its borders. It established its borders in some regards, mm -hmm. and then it ensured the succession for the next two, for the next two generations, Antonius Pius and then Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. Um, but he faced some blowback in that initial decision. Conversely, Right now, Joe Biden is facing some blowback, not for necessarily withdrawing from Afghanistan, but for how he did, um, you know, the execution of that. Yeah, but how, so and I'm and I'm not somebody who's generally going to defend Joe Biden. Sure. But how much of that is really him? And, and he ordered the withdrawal. But how it's executed is up to the generals and they botched it. Now, my uh, personal opinion, I, I would say, I think the withdrawal needs to look like we're going to pull most of our forces out, but we're going to leave some forces who are there to assist and carry and, and assist and carry out operations with the Afghanistan army. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that. So the Afghanistan army just dissolved. Yeah. Um, but as far as his execution of it, that's not no, but uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, think as commander in chief, you always have to take some of that blame for the success or failure of a military operation, even if it is the withdrawal. Yeah. And and so if he either didn't give direct instructions as to, no, I don't like this plan or whatever. I mean, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So then you know, my next question is, you know, his popularity is down. I think he's like at 40, 45% mm -hmm. right now, which is his low in the first seven, eight months of his presidency. But he's banking everything on getting these infrastructure bills done. That's, that's his goal 
for the next two to four years. And my question is, and I wonder, you know, we're looking at Hadrian and we have the, the benefit of time to look at this, but it looks like Hadrian banked everything on build, build, build. If I can mm-hmm. travel the empire and build things and make sure it's safe within the empire, people are going, the people, maybe not the Senate, maybe not the generals, but the people are going to forget about Parthia because they're going to go, the Pantheon's been rebuilt or he uh, fixed the drainage on this. I forgot the name of the lake by Rome. Um, or he built these temples in Greece or he built the Hadrian's wall and stopped the pigs from coming over. And similarly, Biden is going build, build, build. And I wonder if, and I think people and Americans have a famously short attention span anyway. But if Biden can push these infrastructure bills through and if they deliver on what he's promising, I wonder how many people in a year now or a year from now are going to go, yeah, but that Afghanistan withdrawal was really bad and I don't like Joe Biden. Yes, he's, you know, increased health care coverage for me or the child tax care credit or you know, they finally fixed that bridge on 15th Avenue that was crumbling or whatever it is. If if those things happen, and I think that's what Joe Biden is banking on, people are going to forget about the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. And they're like, yeah, it was kind of a botched withdrawal, but hey, we're out now and no more soldiers are dying. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's right. And we can talk about the plight of Afghanistan people, but so the, the parallels yeah. I would see is to the average Roman as to the average American, how much did the Parthian War mm-hmm. versus the Afghanistan War and their respective withdrawals affect the average citizen? Yeah. I have uh, between a month ago and right now, there is literally no difference in my life other than I'm slightly irritated and maybe more than slightly irritated at the method of withdrawal as well as you know the the fact that we lost 19 marines in those operations sure and then we then drone striked and killed 10 innocent civilians those things are very irritating to me um but there's no tangible difference in my life well and that's now, the, do you think the average roman britain when Hadrian withdrew out of Parthia and, you know, the the news came across and in Londinium, hey, we withdrew out of Parthia. We gave up on the Parthian campaign and they're probably like, where's what's Parthia? Yeah. Like I've got the picks are coming across the border constantly. Yeah. Like, I don't care about Parthia. Deal with these guys. Like, like yeah. honestly, I mean, I think that's or you know, if, the, if you are a Roman citizen in Rome, the only thing might be it was, well, I was hoping if we got conquered that my my nephew might be made governor of Parthia. Sure. But but even there, it's like, well, oh, OK, so those legions will be coming home or I, I don't know. I mean, I have not met anyone who's just gotten back from Afghanistan and most Romans probably didn't meet those legionnaires returning because they probably get sent somewhere else. It's. So. Right now, it's simply news and it's irritating at the very least. As far as the infrastructure, these grand infrastructure plans that presidents have in the United States sometimes work out if there's enough of a crisis to push Congress to do it, to fully fund it. We know that the 
the initial what $2.4 trillion infrastructure plan right now is being whittled down to one trillion mm-hmm. in order to get in order to get a couple, support. well, not even bipartisan support, but get Joe Manchin and uh who's the other uh Democrat? Kirsten Cinema. Kirsten Cinema uh on board because those are two that are very moderate and Mm-hmm. It's like, so you have this grand plan. Now, if Joe Biden was emperor and you could simply say, this is what we're doing, maybe. But we're also, we are in the midst of a crisis that half the country doesn't recognize. And our country well, is very split on how to deal with any problem. Say, well, I think our the roads crisis are crumbling. Is- Make a, a business take over the road. Well, I'm not going to be charged to use that road because I'm already paying taxes. It's, I, I run over several pot, potholes a day as it is. I'd love somebody to fix them. And then when they fix them, I get irritated because there's road construction and I have to slow down. I, we, are, we are unwilling to deal with the inconveniences of infrastructure, of common infrastructure. So if we want to do massive, wide, uh, you know, large scale, widespread infrastructures of, of fiber optic. Uh, fiber optic internet or updating our freeways, there's going to be some inconveniences. I don't know if most of the people I know can handle that. That's interesting, but I do think, I mean, it is an interesting point, but one of the things of government, I would say their calling cards is infrastructure, especially if we consider ourselves to the Roman legacy because heirs to Rome. It honestly, Again, we can decide what we can debate over infrastructure is, but honestly, I think that's almost in the constitution of what the the point of this all is, is to make things the general welfare, not welfare as in giving money out, but the general welfare, doing things that benefit everybody. And that includes roads. That includes fiber fiber optic connections to every city and citizen. Yeah, these things make sense, but try convincing half the country that the government should do anything. And I and I think I have kind of myself pulled back from the the only government is the only good government is small government. No, I, I guess in some cases it should be big if it can be effective. Mm-hmm. But if it can't be effective, then then that's not helpful. Sure, but I think you're. This is the opportunity. I don't think the crisis is there's no foreign enemy that's going to attack us right now. No. And then not, there's nothing internet. that's going to there's nothing that's going to threaten us as far as a military advance. But we do have a crisis in confidence of our government and that's something that you've brought up a couple times. Um is that government or confidence in the government is at an all-time low. Like well, passing bills that help the American people restores confidence in the government Mm -hmm. passing infrastructure building roads and bridges i mean i know it sounds trite but building those things restores confidence and high-speed internet although if you live in a city that's a it's a given there's many parts of the country where Mm -hmm. it's not and those things matter to those people and so i do think these things have benefit i do think dealing with road construction is an annoyance but my dad was a construction worker and road construction was his job. And so if there were jobs available, he was a happy man because if those jobs weren't available, 
because there wasn't enough funding, then he was on unemployment. And, and so I, I think in those cases, if you can get hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of construction workers building, that's good for them. That's good for their families. And that makes people happy um, just on that level alone. And then theoretically the increased um, economic ability of those cities and towns and states, because they now have better infrastructure to ship and transport goods and services. That's, that's another benefit, but yeah, the, and the most tangible base... and it, and it lasts a long time and it, yeah. it creates new communities and allows for, for again, when you can do things better, more efficiently, that allows for new, new advances, new innovations. Exactly. And so if there's one thing the government should be doing, it's building things. Yeah, I, I agree. And but I make think it easier that's... for the rest of us to build other things and do and be free. Sure. Exactly. Just like if, if that wall that Hadrian built in England or Britannia or Roman Britain you know, if it reduced the number of incursions from the, the barbarians and the Picts to the north, that made life better for the Britons. And theoretically, it allowed them to be more fruitful and prosperous, which served the empire as a whole. Um, so I, I think there is a there's a lot of correlations there between what happened with Hadrian and potentially today. Now, it's up to our government and Congress to actually pass these infrastructure bills. but. Um, and, and that's, uh, yeah, that's where it becomes bogged down, becomes very the, political based on things that, that aren't part of infrastructure. We get into other debates. But we made a decision to not have an empire. And one of the consequences of an empire is dealing with a Congress that can slow things down, you know. So well, <laughs> if you make me emperor, except I, will build I mean, unless roads. you have a good emperor, good Emperor Hoffman, I will build a five lane each way highway right through Yosemite. Oh yeah. No, that's so it's going to be so fast. A, I'll build a bridge right over the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Just be able to drive between Arizona and Nevada just a little bit faster. <laughs> Where else can we I can't totally wait. <laughs> can't wait. Oh man. Just have a, a hyperloop going across Kansas. No exits, just yeah. One straight shot. So, but here's here's another example is is Hadrian goes through and he makes these reforms. And and they're reforms to these old laws that are antiquated, but they're stuck in the system, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to change those laws, but he goes in and he has the power and ability to reform them. So what if we had somebody that could go in and reform some of our very antiquated laws that actually slow us down things um like like the uh like corn and soy subsidies like how damaging are those things to health and economics and innovation it's right? interesting like, yeah because we subsidize I mean, Certain industries, especially agriculture, is probably one of the most government subsidized industries. Yeah. And we pay farmers to produce corn and, so and soy, which. Or know, we can, pay them to keep fields fallow, depending or, on. Or, or we pay them to destroy crops so that yeah. the price so that we can do yeah. price controls. And I'm not saying those goals are bad or, or the mm -hmm. we shouldn't subsidize farmers. I, I, I think we should. But 
the way that those subsidies are distributed and what they're distributed for is not necessarily in the best interest of America on the whole. And there's unintended consequences. If you're going to subsidize corn, people are going to find uses for corn. And one of the largest uses for corn corn is turning into high fructose corn syrup, which is Mm -hmm. we have a diabetes problem in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to try to treat it. Well, if we want to go to the source, it's the fact that one of our number one produced foods and it's in everything. Or conversely, you could subsidize California farmers to use crops that use less water to plant crops that use less water and cover them while they transition from avocados Mm -hmm. to a low water usage crop like cotton. And then you could conversely change those subsidies for Midwest farmers and say, okay, you guys need to start you know, producing something other than corn um, so that we can feed the people. And, and there's, yeah. But, but, but keep in mind, what's the first caucus in primaries? It's always Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. And what are they always looking for? A pledge not to cut their subsidies, cut their subsidies. Mm-hmm. And so again, if you have someone like Hadrian or one of these emperors, they come and say, this law has, it, it's, its intention was good, but it's 60 years old. And we need to actually reform this because it's going to be in the best interest of everybody. And we're really sorry, <clears throat> Iowa and Minnesota farmers, but we need to, sh- we need to pivot away. Sure. And, but it now has a stranglehold on politics at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And so we're stuck in that cycle. So, that, and if we were to turn around and say, we're going to do subsidies for low water use crops in California, those farmers would in Iowa and Minnesota would say, where's that money coming from? Mm-hmm. And so we end up, we have, because of bureaucracy, we have these stuck things. And so uh, I'm now. Are you in favor of an imperial style of government? I'm thinking. Is that, I'm, is that I'm what I'm hearing? You, you know, go from a small, restrictive, libertarian style government to totally imperial. I love how, it. How much smaller can you get than one guy? <laughs> no, I guess that's true. One guy making all the decisions is quite small. You it's know just... what? Jack was right. Jack was absolutely right. Just have just authoritarianism. Just go for it. Let's just, they can reform the system. And hope they hand oh, it back man. to the people. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you're yeah. you're you're banking a lot on somebody being like Cincinnati. Uh, oh, I'm I'm saying it. It's uh, the only person I can trust is me. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's fair. That's fair. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great way to end this up. Is you're pitching your candidacy for Imperator Eric, and I think that's a perfect end to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. This uh, this wandering but very informative episode we of Dabot History. We didn't even introduce it as Dabot History. Today. Oh yeah, Dabot History. Well, here you are. If you stuck with us, now you know who we are. At um, this point, the beer is warm. Yeah, beer is warm, and and the take is out there. You, you've heard yeah. it all. Hmm. But thank you guys for watching. I'm Jake. This is Eric, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>